Welcome to Epiphany Church. We're in a series in the book of Exodus called Deliverance. And we have a lot to cover in this passage. This is like the movie in Avengers, Infinity War, 19 movies or something over 10 years. So we've been, what I'm trying to say is, for you to really get the most out of this sermon, it's helpful if you have some backstory. <laughs> you know, the, the great thing about those movies that make them events is that you kind of care about these 60-some characters because you've been watching all of their the individual movies and then it culminates and you're like, wow, they're all together. There's not a whole lot of story going on, right? Because there's so many characters, but you're just like, wow, the whole time. And it's the same way Today, we're at the culmination, the decisive big moment in not just Exodus, but in the Old Testament. This is the moment that God's people are going to leave Egypt. And the title of the sermon tonight is, I want you to leave Egypt. I want you to leave Egypt. You might be thinking, I don't know how that's possible since I've never been to Egypt. <laughs> but we're going to get into that. I want you to leave Egypt. Read along with me. We're going to jump around. We're going to cover parts of chapter 12 and chapter 13. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to jump around a little bit. I'm going to read for us Exodus 12, verses 1 to 5 to start. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one per family. And if the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You will have an unblemished animal, a year old male, and you may take it from either the sheep's, sheep or the goats, unblemished. What do we see here? First of all, we see that the families are pretty big. Now, I don't know if you ever did a goat roast, but I've done a goat roast. Like literally taking the goat, put it in my car, alive, you know, taking it out, had it slaughtered. And it's like 20, 30 people can eat a goat. And not only can eat the goat, but I mean, the way we did it is we ate the goat like all the parts. And I'm talking about like the intestines, <laughs> all this stuff that we're like, don't generally eat. But... When we read in the text here, we see that's exactly what they were called to do. They were called to take the goat or the lamb and to eat it completely. So we know that these families, for the most part, are pretty big. And when they weren't big, they were just to kind of connect with their neighbors. And at twilight, they were going to sacrifice these animals and slaughter them all. I mean, this is like, this is not a pretty picture, right? Slaughtering so many animals. But 
this would have been a epic barbecue, <laughs> right? <laughs> and we find out later that it's going to be 600 men besides uh, other people, women and children and other people that went with them. So we're talking like a couple million people are eating. This is a lot of people having a barbecue together and in a haste. That's the last thing. We see that they're eating in a hurry. And there are many other details. Let me read this quote from the New International Version Application Commentary. You see, the focus is not simply on regulation. If you read all the details, you'll see so many things that they have to do to make this meal right. The celebration, I'm quoting here, is to be a lasting, eternal ordinance. Passover is not just an event. It's not just for one night. The Israelites from now on are to pass it on to their children by celebrating the feast God's people in some mysterious way sense, in some mysterious sense, participate in the exodus themselves. Did you catch that? It's not just like this ritual that they do, but when they do this in some mysterious way, they are actually participating themselves in the exodus. And this is the thing. As we read through Exodus, it's moving quick. I mean, one paragraph, and we cover 40 years where Moses is in Midian, right, and shepherding these sheep out in the desert. And then all of a sudden, this entire chapter slows down to a halt and describes in deep detail exactly how this meal has to be to the point where it's like, take, you know, this sponge and do this, and it's like extremely detailed. And why is it? Because... Moses is moving from just telling the story to saying, I'm going to give you instructions exactly how this night's going to go because you're going to do this with your children. Every single year, you're going to reenact, relive this night. Every single year, you're going to come again and you're going to remember the night that I pulled you out of Egypt. The Passover is Old Testament communion. And communion is New Testament Passover. And every week we have this family meal. Every week we come together and we remember our Exodus moment. We remember our deliverance story. We remember that Jesus offered himself up for our sins, that we would be delivered, not from Egypt but from the household of our own selfishness, our own confusion, our own lostness, our own pain, and our sin. Let's just keep reading verses 24 to 27, chapter 12. Keep this commandment permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. And when you enter the land, the Lord will give you, as promised, you are to observe this ceremony when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of Israelites in Egypt when he struck, when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people 
knelt down and worshiped. Now we live in this new covenant, this new promise, this new arrangement, this new deal that God has with his people. And the Lord's Supper that we receive every week is how we remember our deliverance. We celebrate not the exodus that we read about here, right? But we celebrate our own exodus, our own coming out of Egypt. But we celebrate the exodus not just of the Jewish people, but of every nation, every language, every people on the face of the earth. Recently, we've worked with a few people who have left abusive situations. Recently, there's been a number of folks who have come from different states, or we, they were here and we got them out of this state, and they were in situations where they were in an abusive relationship, and they left. And we've helped them in that. And it's caused me to reflect on the fact that you can leave a bad relationship, you can leave a bad situation, you can leave like the Israelites, they left the bondage of Egypt, but you can't leave a bad you. You can leave a bad situation. You could be in a house that you have no business being in. You can be in a relationship that you have no business being in. And you should. You should. We want to help you get out of that. We don't want you staying in that. That's a first step. That's a big deal. But what I'm trying to say is, you can't in your own power leave a bad you. You can't just say, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to think completely different. And I'm going to have a completely new set of habits. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to be different. The exodus we need is deeper. It's deeper and bigger and more cosmic than the exodus that the Israelites got when Moses led them out of Egypt. It is an absolutely desperately needed step. And listen, getting out of a bad home, a bad relationship, is something you need to do. It's something we will physically help you do. Like, like my, uh, you know, my mom was in a, was in a bad relationship, and I grew up in a home that was dangerous. And uh, ain't, no, ain't no church people coming in to help us. And what I want to say, what I want to say right now is that we won't have punk deacons, punk elders, punk church people who are scared to say anything. We won't have people coming in. You coming in, you got a black eye, and we just won't say anything. Recently on the news, there was this prominent church leader that's been in the news because he was, he was telling some woman, she came in, she had two black eyes, and he, she's like the leader of the largest denomination in America. Prominent guy. And she says, are you happy now? You told me not to leave him. And he said, yes, I'm happy because I see 
that your husband came to church. It's not how we're doing it. This is what the Bible says. There is no love and fear, but perfect love casts out all fear. 1 John 4.18. Every command to men in the New Testament, to husbands, is to remind them to be gentle, to be loving, and to offer up their lives as sacrifices for their wives. There is not a single command to beat your woman. And yes, the Bible does say to women, respect your husbands. But it never says to the men, demand that your woman respect you. No, you need to deserve, you need to earn respect. You don't demand it. 1 Peter 3, 7 to 8 talks about living with your wives in an understanding way. Being gentle, knowing they are co-heirs of the grace of God. Knowing that they are co-heirs of salvation with you so that your prayers won't be hindered. That's how big a deal it is. And this isn't just one way. Now I know more and more you can talk about and we can hear about women just wailing on guys. That happens. But this is the thing. Our relationships with each other matter so much that when they're dysfunctional and when they're abusive and when we're neglecting and hurting people, he turns his back on us. And he won't hear our prayers. It says, be gentle and understanding so that God will, that your prayers will not be hindered. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. The grace of God will be removed from your life when we do not follow him. Let's get back into this text. Exodus 12 29 to 32. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, and he, along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and he said, get out immediately from among my people. Both you and the Israelites and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you've asked and leave, and also bless me. Now, if you were to read this passage out of context, it'd be a big problem. A really big problem, right? How is this creator God, whose name is love, sending his destroying angel throughout Egypt so that there isn't a single home that isn't crying, that isn't wailing. You ever heard somebody wail? Go to the right funeral, you will. <laughs> Go to a funeral for someone who died way too young. 
You'll hear it. But I want you to notice. I want you to notice this. Notice how patient God had been. Moses was a grown man when he left Egypt. He was a grown man. And then he went into the desert for 40 years. And then he came back. Right? Remember, he was with his uncle Jethro, the crazy pagan guy, right? And he, he got a wife, Zipporah. And then he comes back. And when he comes back, it's a land that has enslaved God's people for 400 plus years. Forced labor. But this last generation, it wasn't just that they were slaves. This last generation, you remember how the book of Exodus starts. If you were here, you would. It, it, this is how it starts. Pharaoh says, take all the firstborn men, firstborn children that are boys, and drown them in the river. So they did that. slowness of God's response to us can seem like he doesn't care or that he doesn't see what's going on. What did it seem like to Pharaoh or the Egyptians? Probably that God is weak or that there's no God at all. And maybe we can think the same thing, okay? Maybe we can think the same thing, that the abuse that we go through, that the neglect that you went through, you know, someone gets a job, you help them get the job, and then they take the job that you had? <laughs> I know some of you have been through some of this stuff. You work all day or you work all week, and then the end of the week comes, and they're like, I can't pay you, sorry. We've all been on both sides of the fence, the victim and the victimizer. And in our twisted way of thinking, we think that the way to be free, the way to march to our exodus, is to move from being the victim to being the victimizer. That's what we think. And we might not say it out loud, we might not verbalize it like that, but isn't it funny that when we grow up in homes where we're used to cursing each other out, hitting each other, doing all this kind of stuff, it's like we grow up and then what are we doing with our kids in our home? And why are we doing that? Because it feels normal. We replicate exactly what we've been through. And we might try to fight it. And we may be fighting it. But it's not an easy fight, right? A struggle. It's like there's some kind of comfort in, well, this is just the roles that I'm used to. And now I'm no longer the victim. So now I'm going to be the victimizer. But God is the only one who has the right to life and death in his hand. And what does he do? He sends his destroying angel. But he doesn't do it. It's not like, okay, I waited 400 years, now I'm gonna just do it. I'm gonna just kill the children. What does he do? He sends nine plagues first. And not nine puzzles or nine coincidences, right? They weren't hard to figure out. The, the, the Egyptians worshipped the sun. And God was like, 
You worship the sun? Okay, how about I just turn that off for three days? <laughs> they worshiped the, the river Nile because it, it brought all their prosperity. And God says, okay, I'll just make all of that blood. And some of you know about this today. You say, I'm going to put myself before God. But how is that working out for you? You say, I'm going to put my family before God. And how is your family doing? You say, I'm going to put being comfortable and being secure before God. But if you fail at this, what value is your life? Even worse, say you succeed. Say you get comfort and security and you work really hard. What's the point of your life? Was it worth it? Just have a meaningless life. You got what you wanted. Are you happy? The Bible says it, 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 it doesn't, it, it's foolish to gain the whole world but lose your own soul. The wrecking of your idols is a sign that God's judgment is on your life. It is. If you're putting all these things first in your life and you're trying to like, you feel like the toddler that's building up your, 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 your blocks and then your brother comes around and just kicks the blocks down all the time and you feel like you're building up all these areas of your life and it seems like God is coming and sweeping it up constantly, maybe that's because you are putting all of your faith in the wrong things. We're going to see in the weeks to come that God will have us put nothing before him. That his love is ferocious. His love is violent love. Listen to me. You need to know that God loves you like this. That his patience is ridiculous. I mean, the people waited 430 years and didn't see God do anything. What that means is entire generations of people grew up. Not just generations, but like mom, grandma, great-grandma, right? And they didn't see anything happen. He is willing to wreck your life to save it. And I know it seems like God is sometimes moves slow and it seems like we can get the things we want and it seems like we're going to be all right. But he is willing to send his destroying angel to deliver his people. Let's finish the story in chapter 13, verses 14 to 16. In the future, when the, your, your son asks, what, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that is male, that are male. But I redeem the firstborn of my sons. So let it be a sign on your hand 
and a symbol on your forehead. For the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. The lamb dies, but the sons are redeemed. <laughs> right? That's what we read in that passage. The lamb dies, but the sons are redeemed. 2,000 years after this story, a strange man who ate honey and crickets and wore only animal skin but spoke with the power of God was baptizing Israelites in the River Jordan. And this act of baptism was screaming that, hey, look, you might have been God's favorite, but you need to be cleansed like you're outsiders. You, you need to like start over. You need to do like your, your CDC you need to do religion 101 again, you know? You need to go back to the basics. For, for so long, God's people had gone back and forth about being his favorites. Though God loved them, they continued to go back to idolatry and to compromise. But in the distance, that man had never compromised, that was without blemish, that was completely innocent, was caught in the eye of John the Baptist. What did he do? He, he, he fell down. And what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So every year God's people at twilight during the Passover would sacrifice countless lambs. But the first thing that John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Can you see Jesus for who he is like John? Can you see that the, the story of this exodus can you see jesus in it the bible reality of these stories cut deeper and more powerful than that they just happened in history okay i, I believe they just happened in history but we are taught in the new testament that the old speaks of the one who would come that this is all just this is promised this is cosmic this is the truest deliverance that we've been waiting for and we see right in the beginning of chapter 12, what happens? What's going to happen with this deliverance? It's going to be the start of their new month, right? The first day of their year, that everything's going to be counted. All time is going to be counted in a new way because of this exodus. And what happened? What happened? Jesus is born, and all the world counts time at the birth of Jesus. All the world... And you know what? The day of the week, the beginning of the week, right? It was that day, that Sabbath day, the Saturday. And what happens? Jesus raises from the dead, brings in a new era of salvation and a new day. And what is the day that we gather? Which day is the Lord's day now? Sunday. So the entire calendar changes, just like it does in this story. Because this is a story not just for the Israelites, not just for the Jewish people, but this is a story for every single tribe, tongue, family, nation on earth. 
Let me, let, me, let me break this down to you. Jesus, all over the world, let me break this down. Like these, these pictures. Remember I said that all this points to Jesus? Let me give you some examples. The house of Egypt, right? It's the house of the bondage of our sin. Even Jesus went to Egypt as a boy. There was another attempt. There was another attempt to at ethnic cleansing. The Jewish people throughout the Bible and then beyond the Bible to our day now, even now, there have been many, many attempts to wipe Jewish people off the face of the earth. They, none, of them have, none of them have succeeded, <laughs> in case you didn't know, because they're, <laughs> they're still Jewish people, right? But, but uh, Herod, this Greek king, was trying to stop this king from being born, so he went after the sons in Galilee. And Joseph and Mary took Jesus into Egypt. And what I'm trying to say is, you have to know that you were in Egypt. You have to know that you were in bondage. You have to know that you were in slavery to sin. Everyone who would be free must feel they're in bondage. The worst kind of slavery is the kind that you don't even know you're in. We see in chapter 12 that the Egyptians forced them out. They drove them out. And this is crazy. Once sin kept you from God, but now that Jesus has come on the stage, sin can actually drive you to God. Does that sound strange? Well, it's true. <laughs> sin can drive you to God. You know you are being beat up by sin, and the only way to come to God is to come to him asking for forgiveness. That's the only way. Because Jesus didn't come to reward the righteous, but he came to bring a salvation gift to the guilty. And the only way you can get to God is by asking for him to come into your life and to have mercy on you. There is no other way. And that's, that's, that's bad news, but it's also really good news. Who feels guilty? Who feels like they don't measure up? Who's made some mistakes in their lives? Who needs the grace of God in their lives? It's the greatest news. They also, they come out of Egypt with jewelry, right? They ask the Egyptians for jewelry. Now, to, to worship God in the, in the desert and have all these people out there, they would have wanted to be decked out. They wanted to look nice. But I don't know if you know this, but, but people who are captured and are in forced slavery don't have jewelry. <laughs> and yet, they asked the people that made their parents work for free, made their parents work for free, made their parents work for free, and made their parents work for free, hey, listen, we're going to go worship God. And God compelled the Egyptians to hook them up. And when we come out of bondage, when we come out of our slavery, we come out with some stuff. All right? You're going to have some gifts. You're going to have joy. You're going to have love. You're going to have peace. You're going to have patience. You're going to have kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. 
When you come out of the slavery of sin, you are going to have these things. For some of you, it's time. See, it says they left in a hurry and they all left. The one in Exodus 2 who stood up to Moses and said to him, like, are you going to kill me like I saw you kill the other one? And he was being smart with Moses. Guess what? That one is following Moses now out into the desert. The ones who couldn't walk, they are getting carried out. The ones who weren't even a part of God's people, it says there was a mixed group. So there were people that were forced into slavery that weren't even Israelites. And guess what? They're also coming out. And what I'm trying to say is they came out, they came out in a hurry and they came out today. And I wanted to say to you tonight, this day, that the only language that makes sense when you really respond to God is today. Tomorrow doesn't make sense. Tomorrow is not the sign of God working in your heart. If you say, like, I will become a Christian tomorrow. <laughs> okay. And I'm not saying that because, like, hey, a bus might hit you on the way out, although that's perfectly possible. <laughs> but that's not why I'm saying that. When you don't respond and you don't ask for God to forgive you and you don't ask for him to become part of your life, you pile up more and more and more hardness in your hearts to him. What's holding you back? What's holding you back? I'm just going to encourage you. I want you to leave Egypt. I want you to know that we will love you. We'll love other people that we walk with. We'll love you tomorrow. Love you next week. We'll love you next year. <laughs> right? But I also want you to know this. Like, just like God's patience with the Egyptians didn't mean that he didn't see what they were doing, God is patient with us, but it's not like he doesn't see what we're doing. And he wants us to respond to his offer of love. He wants you and I to respond today. And don't mistake the fact that God loves you and is waiting for you as the same thing as this. there's not urgent for you to respond to him right now. Let me just end with this. I remember the first person that I led to Christ. If you've ever led to someone to Christ, you remember that. You do not forget that. Right? I was sitting in Burger King. <laughs> Anybody remember Burger King? <laughs> I was sitting in Burger King. I was like 16. I'd just become a Christian myself. And we're sitting in there. And he comes at me like, well... All I know about you and the church you go to is that you have like simplistic ideas about everything. You think God, like Jesus fixes everything. And, and uh, you know, I don't like your politics. I don't like how you think about anything. And first of all, I'm like, listen, man, like, like, like you don't know what I think about everything. We've never talked. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, you come to a church and there's people who think differently about all kinds of issues. And that's not the issue. I'll tell you what's at heart of it, though. We all believe that God can change anybody. And I told him the story about our pastor and how he would just have people live in his home. 
like from like re criminal records, schizophrenic, mentally ill, those coming out of addiction, come live in my home. And people were getting saved. People were being delivered. People's lives were changing. And I just said, listen, yeah, it's simple, but we believe in the power of God to deliver anybody. And you know what he said? He said, I thought he was going to come at me after I shared a little bit of background. I thought we were going to have hours-long discussion about every topic <laughs> imaginable, right? We're going to talk about marriage and talk about guns and talk, you know what I mean? And you know what ended up happening? He's like, well, I want that. How does that happen? <laughs> I want that. I'm like, really? I was shocked. I was like, really? Well, I was like, all right, so what you can do is just pray with me. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me, all of you. Pray this in your heart. Lord God, I pray that I would not fight you like Pharaoh, not be stubborn, not offer false repentance like Pharaoh, like when he said, fine, your people can go, and then he changed his heart, changed his mind over and over again. But Lord, I pray that we would truly come to the end of ourselves and say, fine, Lord, you forgive me, I accept it. I'm going to make you the first thing in my life. And I know I'm going to do it imperfectly. I know I'm going to be a mess, but I can be your mess. I, I know I'm going to sin. I know I'm going to make mistakes. I know I'm going to falter. But Lord, I can be your faltering, stumbling mess of a person. And I can be loved by you. And I just pray, Father, that whatever it looks like for me to follow you, that I would do it. I'm willing to do it. And, and, and when I mess up, please forgive me. Lord, I give you my life again, or maybe even for the first time right now. In Jesus' name, amen.